clubhouse. You were wrong before. Fate controls most of the outcomes in the world, but not all of them. I control the rest. This is Strong Creatives Welcome, the Nosferatu podcast, your unofficially official Nosferatu after show. I'm Mike Caputo. And I'm Anna Hoagie. May I have a moment of your time? Ooh, chills. Tonight we're discussing episode six of season two of Nosferatu, The Hourglass. The Hourglass was written by Loy A. Webb and directed by Hannah Lee Culpepper, who also directed last week's episode. And as she stated on our Twitter account earlier this week, this is Loy's first episode of television ever and it's amazing <laughs> yeah uh, yeah I, I think she really kind of hit it out of the park stick around after we're done breaking down tonight's episode six because we have a fantastic interview with jonathan the hourglass man beckett himself paul schneider and trust me you do not want to miss it so tonight was a big maggie episode anna it, you know it really reminded me of how, how important jakar smith is to this show you know, I, I feel as good as the show always is, I feel like it gets better the bigger and meatier part she has to play. Oh, yeah, I, I totally agree. And and in this episode, especially, like, her physical acting and mannerisms, you know, as Maggie, they're just even more to find. And, and honestly, it's still really hard for me to wrap my head around the fact that her role as Maggie is her first acting gig ever last year. Just, oh, my God, she's great. Just a natural. Yeah, she she's charismatic. She's she's got some mischief behind her eyes. There just she she just brings a lot to every scene. There's a lot going on in her face and just her body language. You know, her just her her natural acting style makes Maggie an interesting, complex character. Uh, and that's before you even get to the words coming out of her mouth. So you know, they do a great job of writing her, but Jakara does a great job of just bringing this character to life and i think it's a smart thing that they've expanded her role versus the book in the show one thing you and i have been talking about a lot is week in and week out how the show is kind of balancing family drama a little dash of humor as like a release valve together with the fantastical and supernatural and horror elements that a lot of people probably come to this show for did, did you feel that again this week also Oh, oh, definitely. It was it was a full mix, a complete bag of of getting to see all of our main characters moving forward, you know, in this single episode. But it didn't feel crowded. It it, it again, this is props to the writing. There was so much packed into this short amount of time. It honestly felt like a movie. It, it was it you know, I don't know how they do that. <laughs> the show this season in particular and I maybe I felt this way last season but i wasn't talking out loud about it i was just writing recaps of the show so it's harder for me to remember but this show has been so efficient this season which is how they're able to jam pack 
all of the things that they're putting in these episodes in these episodes and these aren't terribly long episodes i was watching i was watching an episode of the alienist the other day and it was 48 minutes and then the one came after it was 50 minutes without commercials and these episodes are coming in between like 39 and 42 44 minutes and they're getting so much in but it doesn't it feels like they're a lot longer like like you said like it feels like a movie they're telling complete stories almost every week but doing it in such an efficient way, there's just no fat. I give major credit to the editors for this show because they are they are just giving us exactly what we need and none of what we don't need. And that's that's a really tight, hard tightrope walk, you know, to to tread. And they they're doing it week in and week out. I give them a lot of credit. So we opened the show tonight with the hourglass man talking about how uh, fate controls uh, most of the decisions that get made in the world, and that he controls the rest. And it was just a kind of a chilling line and. And Paul Schneider, uh, who I'm super excited to talk to later, uh, he he delivers it in such a smooth way, but there's also a little bit of menace behind it. It got me thinking about this show, but it also got just kind of more in general. Like, do you believe in fate? What's your take on that argument? Because that's a, a kind of an underlying theme here between him and Maggie. Yeah, I really, I really also enjoyed that aspect tonight in in sort of how he presented himself as almost you know this controller of fate but yeah i mean it got me thinking too and, and that's a really packed question i mean that's a big question and golly day i mean i'm probably still on the fence to some degree but i'll tell you i'll tell you what i had this dream one time that came true to like a startling degree and it was basically i I was having a dream about my friend. I had a dream that I called my friend and on the phone, my friend tells me how he got, this is like back in college, how he got busted on campus for underage drinking with his friend Jay. And when I woke up from this dream, you know, I just had the weirdest feeling. It was so vivid and so bizarre and so exact. So, you know, I think I talked to him, you know, a few days later and I, I told him about this dream and, you know, and I'm like, don't ever, you know, go drinking on campus, you know, and kind of joked about it and laughed. And he's like, don't worry, I don't even have a friend named Jay. So like a month later, this has kind of been forgotten about. And he gives me a call and we just shooting the shit. And he tells me this story about how he was busted on campus for underage drinking with his friend named Jason, who his other friends what? refer to as Jay. Yes, exactly what I dreamed, him calling me and telling me this story. It gets you thinking, I mean, are, is something, you know, predestined in a way? Did I tap into something that was already going to happen? It's kind of wild. It really, and, and I've been thinking about that for 25 years, probably. That, that that's kind of crazy. Yeah, no, that's, <laughs> that's super crazy. You should have, I mean, you should go back now and find him and ask if someone had asked uh, if they may have a moment of his time. Before he went, before he went and did his drinking. Yes, uh, so. yes, perfect, very good. <laughs> Love it. Oh man. Well, just to switch gears back, I do want to also, before you know, we get into the meaty stuff, give a shout out to CP Wilson for that beautiful Providence Hotel title card. Oh my God, it it just sort of shimmered off the screen and. 
I just feel so spoiled after we got to see so much of his work, you know, last week in episode five with the Vic and Wayne title card. So, you know, I was really happy about that one. It was a really ornate title card, this one. You know, some yeah. of them are pretty simple. Some of them are just a little bit of a design to them. This one was large. It took up a lot of the screen. It, it also made me nostalgic to see more of them. Uh, let's jump in. Let's talk about the Hourglass Man first, because this was a big lore episode for him. We learned a lot. After teasing us in the Night Road with a little bit of the Hourglass Man and then giving us a taste of his power last week, uh, tonight we got two, two full demonstrations of his power, as well as a complete explanation of his gift, its cost, how he mitigates it. Now that we've seen how it all works and we know more about him, do you think this exceptional person fits into the show lore? How does it how how did it sit with you after all of a sudden done? Ooh, I like that exceptional person. I think the way it fits into the overall lore is that it's showing us how important it is the cost of using the gift is is pain oriented. It's, you know, kind of fucked up, but the only way to pay for your gift is by experiencing pain or inflicting it on someone else. And, you know, this is sort of a new part of the, the, the SCU, the Strong Creative Universe, uh, that we didn't really have before. We didn't really know, you know, to an exact degree that it, it it's like this for everyone and that there's also this way around it. It kind of reminds me of the gypsy pie and dinner, how the only way to remove a curse is to pass it on to somebody else. And also, again, it reminds me of that show that we both love, The Magicians, and kind of, you know, keep bringing it up, but I can't help it. There's this whole theme in that show, in this line, about how magic comes from pain. And I think it's something that, that most artists and creative people in general kind of come to know quite intimately at times this this idea that suffering opens doors to greatness you're you're pulling something out of yourself and and that that's a sacrifice well one never apologize for bringing up the magicians <laughs> everyone needs to bring up the magicians a lot more than they already do i don't care if the show has ended at this point amen y'all should be talking about the magicians as much as you possibly can because the show deserves that love yes it, it there, there does seem to be this idea this recurring idea in you know throughout television and movies about magic comes from pain uh and that connection and certainly artists are forever associated with pain and suffering yeah i think we talked a little bit about it with paul i think you'll hear in the interview where he talks about how he can't watch himself on tv you know where he he's just self-conscious and you know always feels like he's going to criticize his own work and so many actors and, and actresses and and different kinds of creatives feel that way they they create this beautiful art and then they beat themselves up about it incessantly until they move on to the next thing that they can torture themselves about. Honestly, it's exactly like that. Yeah. I'm, I know personally, as soon as I make something and it's out the door, I'm ready to throw it in the garbage. <laughs> and I don't know why yeah, um, that is. I'm ready to toss it and move on to the next thing. I feel like I'm done with that and, and I don't like it anymore. So it's got to go. And it's it's taken years to kind of like tamper down that impulse almost. Not only did Jonathan Beckett give a good explanation of his gift and, and do some nice up-close magic for Maggie, but he also gave her some useful mentor-like information, you know, how to mitigate the cost of her gift. And, and more importantly, I think to her, maybe more importantly, or as equally importantly to her, said out loud something that maybe she's thought about but hasn't really processed, the idea that 
you know, civilians, what, what I keep calling civilians in these episodes, people who are not strong creatives or don't have supernatural kind of powers are drawn to those powers and then once in the relationship kind of want to change you from using them or or make you feel bad about them he you know he refers to it as declawing a cat and calls it cruel do you think those words were really soaking in for maggie at the bar and then in the hotel room or was she just kind of putting on a good show for him to get the answers that she wanted both i think she was taking in what he was saying and and processing it and kind of putting it in the back of her mind as she was sort of putting on this charade of being impressed and following along with whatever he said and sort of you know doing that little dance but i think as we see later on she did take those words to heart a little bit and was processing and thinking about it because it later ties into you know what we see happen between her and Tabitha at the end I think that's right I think he planted a seed in her brain or maybe or maybe didn't plant it It, I'm sure it was there right but maybe it germinated and blossomed a little in her brain after hearing his words because it does seem like she comes at Tabitha at the end of the episode really inspired by what he said to her about the idea of you have to accept me either accept me or this is not going to work because i'm done changing myself for you that's a really powerful thing it's a it's a powerful thing to realize within yourself that you are done changing or being less than just so someone else can feel better about themselves oh hell yeah it it was like she had a confidence at that point and she just came out and said it and we've seen throughout the episodes leading up to now how it's been this tug of war almost between her and Tabitha and how Tabitha sees her using the tiles almost like an addiction and that she's had to help her become sober not use her gift and this interaction with the hourglass man really did have an impact it gave her that confidence to say "Uh uh-uh I'm, I, I have to be who I am, just like you have to be who you are. Well, we'll talk about more of th- that later a little bit, because, man. For me, that was that was actually a big moment in the show, because this was an important Maggie episode. And I, I feel within the course of this, she, she goes pretty far along her journey. So I think her final conversation with Tabitha definitely deserves its own conversation when we get there. But I'm not done with these two yet, though, because this bar for me, this bar scene between John and Maggie, to me, was just sexy as fuck. It, it, was, it was just this total seduction on both of their parts, each trying to get the thing they wanted from the other, limiting what they were giving up of themselves how did this whole scene just in general play for you oh i completely agree it was it was like this beautiful sort of saucy dance going on right when maggie was coming down the stairs first of all i love the direction of that whole scene the lights flickering and he sort of turns around and the eye contact yeah i mean it was just some major hotness energy like with the lights flickering and you just felt it too they've just both got their vibe game down but i'm sorry maggie is just so velvet smooth i mean it really does feel like she pretty much has the upper hand through the whole conversation and and she sort of has this little she's sort of her body language she's sort of just sitting back and she's keeping herself you know kind of in a place of power uh, and letting john be the one sort of mostly in pursuit 
and oh my god you know you just had to drop that Casablanca line it, it really made me laugh because we're just in this supernatural horror series and the juxtaposition of of that super romantic reference you know it's a little bit absurd and quite lovely honestly you know <laughs> no i think in a lesser actor's hands or a less charming actor's hands it would have come off much more on the cheesy side than the Jim from the office kind of cute and charming way that it kind of hit me anyway. And I think Paul Schneider is just so smooth and dapper in this scene and in this character. I, I thought he kind of nailed it perfectly. You know, I don't know that I've got the game to drop a, Ca a Casablanca line with a straight face. I don't think I can do that. This show, this episode, or this scene was kind of a big tonal mood shift for me, or for, for me, for Nosferatu. Uh, you know, it's a show that's done horror. It's done family strife. It's done love, sacrifice. It's done, you know, humor, not too much of it, just a little, just enough. But sexy is not something I really associate with Nos. And has the show really ever dipped its toe into the sexy waters before? <laughs> I, I think it has. I mean, I, I think we've we've seen the show dip its toe into sexy. But, I mean, in small ways, definitely. Are you saying they're bringing <laughs> sexy back? Is I that am, what you're saying? I am never, ever going to say that, ever. You will never hear me say that. <laughs> All right. Somewhere Justin no. Timberlake is crying, but that's fine. <laughs> No, but I, I think first season early on, it's one of the, the, the first things we learn about Maggie that kind of helps her or helps us clue into who she is. You know, she's like the kind of gal who will seduce a stranger visiting the library for a book of poetry. You know, I mean, we had we had that scene, which was pretty whew. Ah, fan self. And then there's, you know, I, maybe it's weird for me to say this. Maybe we won't talk about this too much because of last episode. Um, <laughs> <laughs> see, you know, shush. But there's, you know, there's Manx who just flat out wanted Vic to be his Christmas land wife. And in that bus station, he was attempting to seduce her in his own creepy yet saucy way so you know yes and i'll definitely admit that I, I guess maybe it's the maggie factor maybe it's just that she brings a real smoke show factor with her oh yeah because i charlie charlie can be charismatic he can be seductive in his own like you say creepy yet saucy way but i don't really <laughs> consider his moves sexy um <laughs> but but this scene was just like, you know, it could have been playing like some like Barry White behind them and it would not have felt oh, yeah. out of place, you know, yeah. like, hey girl, you know, when he says, let's go to the room and he grabs the bottles and he yeah. tells her, he's like, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not going to hurt you unless you want me to. Oh, Ooh, oh damn. <laughs> damn yeah, it was nice. It was nice. Yeah. That was a nice scene. Nice touch. Again, really, really well written really well written so it just it did fit right in you know and it and it and it just balances on the edge of over the top just right so yeah they 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 have this really beautiful tightrope that they just sort of mastered in this show for them to be able to just f flow through these different genres within the show itself up in the hotel room he you know they're playing this you sh you, you show me yours and I'll show you mine kind of game and he tells her in his real seductive way, you know, I need your tiles. This is a hands-on tutorial. <sighs> and uh, he, you know, he asks this question about immortality. She asks him, she gives him a lot of warning. She gives him a lot of chances to change the question. 
she has a good feeling. She is someone who is used to people asking questions and not getting the answers they want from her tiles. He says he's ready to hear the answer no matter what it is on whether or not he's going to achieve immortality. But was he? Do you think he was really ready to hear that answer? I think that this man has been so used to making people do whatever the fuck he wants that it's obviously made him incredibly cocky, oversure of himself. I don't think he's even contemplated that the answer might not be what he wants. I think he always gets what he wants. I think he always gets what he desires because of his strong creative gift. And, you know, he thinks he thinks that, that in some way I think that he can even manipulate fate through the tiles, through her gift somehow. I think he's even that oversure of himself. I don't know. What do you think? I think that's right. I think even when he says the line, you know, fate controls most of the decisions, I make you bet if you actually looked inside his thought bubble, he probably thinks that's not true. He probably thinks he actually controls more, maybe not more than fate does, but probably not. He probably thinks his powers are more powerful than he's even letting on here. I think that he's actually showing a little humility uh, compared to what he probably really thinks about himself. So I think you're, I think you're dead on. I, I think his ego knows no bounds. And it's interesting that he drops Charlie's name here in this scene because it really kind of reveals his hands. One of the things you and I have been talking about is why is he working with Charlie Manx? You know, at, at the first sound of his name when Abe calls him, it almost sounds like he doesn't really want to work for Charlie. Like he's not really interested, but then, but then he is. And now he's really doing like henchman work for Charlie Manx. So the question is, why is this powerful, strong creative, you know, acting as bitch to Charlie Manx? What's, what's in it for him? Well, it's this question of immortality. I think that was kind of a big reveal as to his motivation. It's a question you and I have been asking for a couple of weeks now. What is the hourglass man getting out of this relationship? Yeah, yeah. What, what, what's his part of the deal? And I think that's exactly it. He, 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 he found this strong creative who's, who's tapped in to uh, a method of staying young. And I think that Jonathan, the hourglass man, Beckett, uh, wants to be a god. I think he thinks that he almost is to that level, and that's the one part that he's missing. If he would live forever and be immortal, then he would be a god. I think, I think that's what he's getting out of it for sure. It's really disturbing how coldly or plainly he speaks about the fact that he has these people kill themselves and again, answering another question about his power, why, why does he end up having them all kill themselves at the end before the sand runs out of the hourglass? It's because that's how he mitigates the cost, right? That's how he mitigates the cost of his gift is he inflicts pain upon others instead of cigarette burns on himself. And I, the way he plainly speaks, not only about that, but about the fact that he's already taking these people's lives. So he was hoping that maybe he could figure out a way to start banking the, the time left that they Ugh. had on Earth. Ugh. It was chilling to hear yeah. him not that he said the words right I, i'm used to villains saying crazy shit but the the matter of fact way and almost like like a little kid trying to argue for more ice cream you know like i should be able to get this you know like i'm already doing the work i should be able to take some of their extra life too and bank it he says bank it like he's like talking about like a vacation club it was really chilling the way he kind of goes from smooth charming demeanor to really cold killer to then hyper violent 
uh, all in the span of a little bit of a time. I want to give you a chance to uh, give some shout-outs here to Al Goto and his stunt team for another third week in a row amazing, amazing fight scene. What did you think about Maggie getting uh, thrown around the room and smashing <laughs> into shit? That was crazy. I mean, you know, it's the first time we've we've. I mean, we've seen her get hit by the the race. Um, you know, so once again, she's kind of getting tossed around. But man, when she grabs that lamp and whips that like over at him, I mean, like the just like the whole way that Chikara uh, sort of like had this sort of whip, you know, to the wrist with it and, and just yeah, looked like, yeah. you know, totally that confidence again, that that was beautiful. And, you know, honestly, he totally deserves what happened to him. I think he deserves the, the shiv to the, to the gut. God, he's horrible. He's a horrible, yeah, horrible yeah. person. <laughs> I was pretty down for him because of the charismatic nature. You know, you love characters like that, but this was so violent and so fast and it was so it was almost abusive in a way the way he was doing it you know we watched oh, her yeah. get run over by the wraith last year and that did it a car running her over didn't hit me as impactfully as this close-up violence the throwing her through the coffee table just beating the shit out of her with menace in his eyes when he says you know i don't like to get my hands dirty you know i usually have other people do that for me but like almost like he's relishing the idea of watching the life force leave her body at his yeah. own hands. Yeah. Fucking fucking chilling, Anna. It was chilling. Uh, again, because I think he's he's at the, the the mindset where he thinks he's a god and nobody else really matters. Life doesn't matter. It's just a like you know, like a battery. It's just uh, a commodity, something to be consumed. With baseball starting up this week and uh, the shortened season opening, uh, you know, opening games happening when we're recording this, uh, it, it, your analogy about her whipping the lamp around into his face, which was, I mean, I definitely fist pump and said, fuck yeah, for sure, while I was watching. <laughs> it, made, it made me think that if, if that was a baseball instead of his head, it would have been a home run in just about every single baseball park in this country. I mean, girlfriend got a load of his head, like, pow! It, it's all in the wrist. It was it's fantastic. all in the wrist. It was fantastic. <laughs> all right, so we leave him with a smash hourglass and a ship in his belly. But we don't see him die, and we don't see a final body. What does this tell us, Anna? You are a master of these kinds of genre shows. Well, you know, genre show rules are basically this. If you don't see an actual final death on the screen, then the door is left open for the return of this character. So, really, we see him still alive, you know, the last second that we see him, the last moment that we see him. So, technically, the door is still open. I would like to see him again, but I don't want to see him again. I'd like to see him again because, like you said, I love the character. He, like, walks the edge of just being over the top in, in, in almost the same way of Manx. I enjoy the fuck out of it. But for our characters... Oh my God, it's he's so dangerous. You just never know. Like Maggie said, like who's going to be coming at you next? I mean, we started off the episode. I wasn't even able to breathe. It goes right into another attack on Vic, for the for the plot in the story. 
I don't want to see him again. <laughs> That's the only reason why. But it would be yeah, fun, you know. Seeing him at work, even with the limited rule, and we talked about this last week about how I like this character because of the limiting rule of the hourglass. It, it, it puts a limit on his power. It caps how much damage he can do. Even with that, he is an extremely powerful opponent. And mind control is, is such a forceful... Uh, thing to be able to exert upon another person, so it's a really disturbing thing. But that being said, I think I think he's a great addition to the villain cast of things, right? So I, I kind of want to see him again, but I also kind of feel like you too. I mean, he he wreaks so much kind of devastation. I kind of don't want to see him again. You know, I, I'm sitting here with like Rollades and Tums watching these episodes because of the <laughs> Ajita. and uh, you know him him being on the screen, it, it's just not good for my heart rate or my indigestion. So I said that these episodes need to come with Valium. Yeah, each yeah. week or a yeah. Xanax. Yeah, Xanax. <laughs> AMC just mails everybody one in the mail for each week. <laughs> like branded like show swag. Like you know, yeah, you're, you're, yeah, you're, yeah. You're, you're AMC Xanax. You're not for all two Xanax. Where the O is like a little Xanax pill. <laughs> Maggie leaves him with a great kiss offline. She's like, I told you, John, the tiles never lie. I don't, I don't know what accent that is I'm doing, but that's my accent. Anyway, like so which is, which is a great kiss offline, but let's shift to – this is Maggie's triumph. Let's shift to her and her partner. Oh, you said triumph. That's Maggie's triumph. Ooh, I like this that. is Maggie's triumph. I, that was a total accident, but I'm, I'm going to lean into it hard as if I meant that. So her partner, Tabitha, is not having the best of times and not having the best of days. You know, before this all starts, Tabitha kind of gets at Maggie to not, not go do anything crazy and, you know, leave the hunt for whoever Manx may be working with to, to the FBI, to the failed, badly incompetent. After the stunt she pulled at the house of sleep. Does Tabitha have any right to try and stop Maggie from going after whomever Manx is working for now and, and trying to end this nightmare? No, not not at all. I mean, we've seen sort of now how their situations are, are really mirrored. They, they've they both had to – well, it's basically like this. Tabitha now sees what Maggie's had to deal with, where Maggie has had to try and live without a part of herself that makes her who she is. And – with with Tabitha being taken off the case and and you know after what she did sort of brazenly going into the house to sleep herself she's now paid a cost and so when Maggie brings that up in how Tabitha can't be the only one risking her life Tabitha's already become hurt, paid a cost, lost her place on this case, lost the ability to help, which is sort of like who she is. It's all true. Tabitha now sort of has to surrender in in a way. And, and it was just a really great sort of emotional envelope going around those two because I really felt for Tabitha. Actually, Roman was so great, you know, especially just showing that devastation. And it was just it was kind of beautiful the way that, that they both are in the same situation now. Both of them trying to help the other and help the situation, but also feeling a little powerless and and feeling a little ineffectual too. And trying to sort of almost be protective of the other person at the yeah. same exact time too. So they're right, both right. overprotective. They're both in the exact same place. And, and I think that they're recognizing that now. And, and that I think that's really important for them in the relationship and how they're going to be able to help out the story more moving forward, definitely. There's a scene in the bar when uh, Maggie watches 
John do the bourbon trick and he gets the bartender to give him the glass for free and then he turns the hourglass off which was interesting we never we hadn't seen the hourglass get turned off where the power gets terminated prematurely and she has a look on her face that is if not open outright fear you know there's definitely some awe and and impressed uh, look on her face but I really sensed some like fear of how powerful this guy she's sitting with is and I think maybe she underestimated or didn't really consider how powerful a gift he had. And it mirrored her running into this situation with maybe not thinking it all the way through, but acting out of a desire to do something. Really mirrored for me Tabitha running into the church instead of waiting for backup, going in alone, thinking she could handle the situation, not really maybe appreciating all the bad shit that could have happened. Out of the same reason that Maggie acts tonight. The sense of, I have to do something. I have a path in front of me I can take to help, to keep my loved ones safe, to make this end. So I'm going to take it. The consequences be damned. I really like how these two keep doing things that mirrors the other, but both of them, but it ends up putting them both at risk, which is the last thing the other one wants. Does that make sense? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Again, really beautiful writing throughout here. When we talked to Ashley, she talked about how, how psyched she was to have Jakara as her wife on the show and their, their chemistry and how much fun they have acting together. I think you see that oh, in these scenes together. Oh, yeah. They have great chemistry, and they just feel so right together in this show. And so the way that we're, we're seeing their relationship un- unfold is quite brilliant and how they are going to continue to fit into the story. Like you said, I really, I really love how they expanded both of these characters' roles in this show. One thing that concerns me about this situation, and I'm putting it out there just because I want to be on record as voicing the concern of it, not because it was necessarily a huge plot point tonight, was by the end of the episode, Tabitha lost the thing by which she defines herself as this law enforcement agent who can crusade and try and solve this situation the way she knows how. And Maggie hasn't lost her gift. If anything, Maggie actually improved her gift tonight. She's now learned a way to use her gift with very minor, at least to her, with very minor consequence. She learned how to mitigate her gift tonight. So she's on the way up with her power to do something. And Tabitha, at the end of this episode, is literally just sitting on the couch crying. Because she has, the thing that she could do has been taken away from her. So I raise all of that, and only because it gives me worry that, that there will be some kind of resentment or jealousy that may build now in the remaining episodes of the season that will drive a wedge between them. So I think it's something we have to watch. I didn't see it tonight, but it's something I definitely want to put on the radar to keep an eye out for, because I think a lot of people can uh, identify with a situation where someone has a thing taken away from them that they use to define themselves, and they react badly, and they tend to lash out against loved ones when that happens. So that's my little worry about Tabitha. So I, I just want to kind of put it out there as something as, uh, as a let's watch that you know column. Oh, yeah, that, that's a good point. That's a really good point. I definitely I definitely agree. I wanna I wanna keep an eye on that and how that plays out for sure for sure. So we already talked about it a little bit, but I want to expand. I want to get your thoughts a little bit more on it. Uh, at the end of the episode, Tabitha is still trying to persuade her that it's not normal for people to burn themselves with cigarettes in order to use their gift. And Maggie rightly says, I, "I'm not normal." The people I hang out with are not normal and essentially says, you know, you either have to accept me for who I am or not, because I'm never going to stop using my tiles again, not for anyone, which is some real fucking straight talk. And I'm proud of Maggie for saying it, but 
also it's an ultimatum and ultimatums don't always work out the best for the person making them what was your take on this final scene between these two i'm pretty pro maggie here i mean i know it's an ultimatum in a way but it, it kind of needs to be said because again tavisa is sort of experiencing what maggie's had to go through all this time in trying to stifle who she is and part of who she is and at least for me i i've kind of always taken the approach where if you love someone you you try to love the whole person and you you don't try and force them to change something that's really an essential part of who they are and you know i know that it's because tabitha has this huge concern and just wants to keep maggie safe and doesn't like to see her having seizures and now doesn't want to see her having to burn herself with a cigarette but i think it's i think it's something that maggie should have put out there from the beginning because like like maggie said tabitha totally risks her life all the time as an FBI agent. And at least in, in this universe, I think a couple of cigarette burns is a small price to pay to be able to help save people's lives, um, especially people that you, you love and your family. So I think it was important for Maggie to kind of take a stand. But I also think, I don't think it's going to change how she, she supports Tabitha. I think she's still going to be there, and I think it's just maybe now that Tabitha has seen a lot more, and now Maggie has that confidence, you know, she's, she's sort of taking the opportunity to put her foot down. I, I hope at least that it's a good thing. There's an interesting parallel between this reaction, Tabitha, unlike Linda, uh, which is really our only civilian who hasn't seen the horror in action, seen, seen the real face of the thing we're dealing with in action yet. Tabitha has seen it. You know, she she fought Bing, she fought Manx, and yet she's still she's still trying to be rational about it, like a normal world, uh, like a like a Muggle worldview on how this is all going. And and I compare that with Lou, who Lou was a real doubter about you know the hero bullshit and 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 Vic going off and risking her life and leaving him and Wayne alone. But now that he has seen it, he is much more let's go team. Like I get you have to go after uh, after Manx. I get you have to go try and get Wayne back. You know you're not alone. He he's really kind of embraced the the thing. Chris, exactly. we're going to see in a second. We're about to switch to Chris and Linda. Chris Chris goes to bat for Vic tonight and says, yeah, I think she might be kind of special. You know we have to do that. Tabitha is still really holding on to this normie Muggle straight world vision of almost denying that this is a part of who Maggie is and it's the world Maggie lives in. She, she really needs to kind of surrender that a little bit, I think. Moving on to Chris and Linda, who I think had one of my favorite scenes in the episode tonight, but let's talk about Linda because something you and I talk about, I think every week is the release valves of tension that the show throws in, in the form of humor. The show will never be a laugh riot, but there are always some things in every episode that make me either chuckle or right straight out laugh out loud. And Linda dressing down the FBI agents, the failed badly incompetence at the top of this episode, and then, and then ending it with, with her real trump card that she plays, that they're Americans, that her husband works at the Postal Service, and that she goes to church, had me just about pissing my pants. It was the <laughs> ultimate. She, she says it with such piss and vinegar. It's a total mic drop moment for her, but it just had me laughing my ass off. 
It was just so Linda McQueen. And I mean, McNulty. Look, Linda what. McNulty. Linda Sorry. McNulty. You're right. Oh my God. God damn it. <laughs> Respect yes. her ginger love. Oh, yes. But seriously, like, I don't, again, this is a testament to the writing. I, my mom doesn't even watch the show, but I actually told her about that scene and told her those lines, and she was cracking up too. So it, that was a really, really great moment. Definitely loved it. And Linda's kind of on fire in, this, in the beginning of the episode because she goes from dealing with the FBI guy then to trying to restrain her daughter from leaving the hospital who's, who's woozily trying to get dressed. How insane did Vic sound telling Linda that she tears the fabric between the real world and the world of thought? She sounded fucking batshit crazy. Oh, I was just cringing the whole time. No, Vic, don't say it like that. Oh, my God, you're going to get locked up. And sure enough, Linda threatens to have her get yeah, just another psych eval. Ashley Cummings like acting in that moment with her where she kind of leans back with that really frustrated hands on the head. That's what I was doing. <laughs> I was doing the exact same action for that moment. Oh my god. I mean, Ugh, listen, don't... if someone tells me that they're tearing fabric between the real world and the world of thought, I'm definitely looking around the room for whatever pills they're taking. So <laughs> I can see out of context where Linda's coming from here. But she's, I mean, this, she, her day is just starting, right? Because then she has this conversation with Chris, and there's so much going on here between the two of them. But one of the things, it, it just kind of broke my heart listening to her talk about how her daughter can't be magic because if she were special that way and Linda didn't notice it the entirety of her growing up what does that say about Linda as a mother and taking that angle I wouldn't have predicted that that was her response but it's such a parent concern the idea that you never understood your kid or or any loved one you know you 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 have a husband you have a wife you have parents you have kids anyone who's close to you who you spend a lot of time with and then you you learn something about them that makes you reevaluate everything you thought you knew about them. You can see right where she wouldn't want to admit that was true because what does that say about her in this role here as a mother? That was really heartbreaking for me. What was your take on the scene uh, between her and Chris? I absolutely loved this scene. In fact, even with all the excitement going on, I think it was probably one of my favorite scenes of the whole episode, honestly. The chemistry is undeniable. I I just loved every line of dialogue. And again, with the writing, like, I just, I don't think I would have thought of that angle. And maybe, you know, again, it's because I'm not a parent, but I just thought it was just so thoughtful and, and real. My, like you said, my heart just sort of like, oh, kind of broke a little bit, especially with Evan. Oh, my God. His response to her when she says, what kind of mother misses something like that? And he, oh, his delivery and the way he turns around, his eyes, he's just like, you know, the kindness too busy, hiding bruises and paying the bills to look up and the kind with a philandering drunk for a husband. Um, right. my My heart just sank. Him, him taking responsibility there with his big-ass puppy puppy dog eyes. Ugh. Just really fucking great delivery. What I had in my notes here, the, the thing that struck me watching these two go together, Virginia and, and Evan interacting, and, you know, when we talked to Virginia Cole last week, she talked about how she, one of her favorite things were acting with Evan. 
and and in particular she said she loved fighting with him and, and it just came so naturally the two of them and their chemistry on screen you could see here just for a moment you could see how these two wound up together the the chemistry here the bond that they share the the way they stare at each other for the first time really maybe ever you understand how chris and linda became a couple all those years ago that's a really powerful thing for them to express to the audience this has not been a good relationship the entirety that we've known these two right this has been a textbook in in toxic relationship for both of them but for them now over the shared concern about their daughter and what she may be and what power she may have and what role she may have to play dangerous or otherwise in getting back their grandson you saw you saw here how these two actually found each other and what attracted them to each other years ago i thought i thought it was i thought it was a really impressive scene of acting for both of them oh definitely i and i think just the fact that the way the scene was filmed, I mean, the physical space was, you know, one of those little hospital curtain bed cubicle things. So you're in this sort of really private, personal, intimate space that's very small. They're close together. With all the hell that they've been through, they just really communicated this 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 deep, resounding love that they have for each other that you kind of get the feeling that is, is always going to be there. And again, we could, I think we see that later on, too, that the whole family just sort of comes together. But again, I, I just want to give it another mention how fucking awesome Chris McQueen is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's definitely going to have some, you know, if he was on Tinder, he would definitely have some action following this couple of episodes. <laughs> For sure. Are you looking for a real Bear Grylls type who's now sensitive and into his emotions? Come find Chris McQueen up at the lake. <laughs> Who likes to write in the in in the cabin by himself with his? Um, I still I'm still convinced that that bathtub is actually his knife. But we'll talk about that another time. I'm sure. <laughs> so next time we see Linda, she's you know she's really taking Chris's words to heart, and, and in some way maybe. He just said out loud something that she already already maybe suspected about her daughter, but wasn't willing to admit yet. Anyway, she so we find her going over all of Vic's old artwork, which is really dark. And Vic comes in, and they had this great mother-daughter moment. And I thought it was a great button to the recurring theme this season about the bond and the complicated relationship between mothers and their children. But specifically, it made me think of you bringing up the tightrope walk that... Uh, mothers and daughters have and that we we've seen so far this season um, between Vic and Linda but really saw all of last season the the I yell at you because I love you you know I yell at you because you don't understand me kind of relationship all fueled by love but never expressed maybe in the right way what was your take on this scene between the two of them talking about you never thought you needed me and you know but I did this made me think of you because I know you've, you've touched upon uh, this a couple times with these two uh, and their relationship. Oh, sure. And I think that that little exchange there is something that happens a lot between mothers and daughters, you know, this sort of misunderstanding of care. And like I mentioned last week, when, when Linda is hugging Vic in the hospital, I think that's really the first time that we even saw a, a, an exchange of physical affection between them. So Linda's definitely softening up. And, you know, and again, it reminds me of our interview last week with Virginia Call, who plays Linda, and how she's talking about the character and how how basically this is a mom who would take a bullet for her daughter, who would do anything for Vic. But 
at the same time isn't afraid to keep her in check and hurl a fucking bottle at her if she's acting up. And I think at this point with her learning, first of all, that her grandson's gone, and now that her daughter might have superpowers, basically, I think it's a little overwhelming for her. But she's coming around. She's, she's, her, her gears are turning. I think what Chris said is starting to really to settle with her. And, and I think she's going to step it up. And I think she's going to try to be more understanding and less dismissive of Vic and overall try to believe her if, if that's what it takes to get Wayne back and keep her family safe. And I think, she, I think she's coming to realize that. And I think that that's a positive step for Linda. I think that's right. Virginia promised us at the end of the last week what we could expect for Linda. She kind of hinted at Linda's world view being blown open and her eyes opened and her mind kind of blown by what she was in store for. And I think we saw the start of that tonight. Uh, speaking of her daughter, I think we need to get to Vic and Lou because the two of them didn't have a lot to do in this episode, but the scenes that they had were really important for reinforcing the bond that these two have and, and this relationship that they have. In a continuation of, for me anyway, one of the big themes of the season is the maturing of Victoria McQueen. This is a new Vic that we're seeing in season two where she's thinking more than just beyond her impulse. In season one, there's no way a hospital, her mother, drugs, uh, any kind of pain reliever pills would have kept her in the hospital and, and not had her running down with you know her ass hanging out of a hospital gown down the road trying to steal a motorcycle, trying to get to her shorter way to try and get to Charlie Manx to get her son back. But that's not how she's acting here. She's giving herself time to heal a little bit. She's checking on Lou. She's respecting her mother's wishes to get back in there and taking her threat seriously about the psyche valve. Yeah, this is this is maturity. This is character development. This is growth. And I think it's super important for us to see that because I think it makes her a more believable character. And it also makes her suffering seem a little bit more real. And we see her going to Lou's bedside to deliver some bad information. The FBI's lost Wayne's signal on his cell phone. <sighs> I know. And, by the way, baby, you had a cardiac incident after getting the shit kicked out of you at the lake, and so a uh, stent was placed in your heart so you don't die. What a shitty way for Lou to wake up, huh? <laughs> yeah, that, that's some pretty horrible news for him to just sort of, oh, by the way. <laughs> but, honestly, props to Mr. Lou. Again, he just, I uh, love it. I love how he immediately just tries to spring into action. He's got to find Wayne. They've got to get Wayne. And it's just, he's immediately back to being that emotional rock for Vic. You know, it's like twice tonight he reminds her that she's not alone and that they're going to find Wayne. He's, he's and just... serving up some much-needed humor, yeah. too. Yeah, that Han Solo line. How funny was that? I loved it. And I love that she calls him on, too. Like, did you just yeah. speak about yourself in the third person? <laughs> and rank yourself above Han Solo? Yes. And he's like, he's like, yeah, baby, I did. That's yeah, I, I did. did. I did. But, it, you know, it's just perfect. Perfect writing, perfect little character insight that again, just reinforces that sort of special little bond that they have over geeky things and that, that, that sort of helps keep them going as a couple we're starting to see. You know what I mean? Like if they're little in-jokes and, and it's, really, it's really nice that a show thinks to add that level to their characters and again give us that little bit of humor that that we need sometimes right it just adds in the believability that they have these in jokes this is not the first time that they're having this kind of conversation but also they've been together now for eight years so of course they have 
this kind of deep relationship that we're just getting glimpses of because that's how it would be you know if we were just some kind of perverse voyeur hanging out in their hospital room watching all of this go down that's how it would be to us right it, it wouldn't be it's one of those things that drives me crazy in shows when someone asks someone a question while they're in a room and then you cut to them in a car and clearly they've been driving for a while and then they answer that question what did you not talk between the room we saw you in and getting in the car on the road and driving to have the it drives me crazy it drives me crazy this show respects its viewers more by not doing that and and kind of goes about its characters in a way of you don't need to know where this joke comes from just that they're making it now and i love that i love that a lot he's a good mechanic he may be better than han solo as a mechanic but that triumph was in bad shape anna I mean, we knew that the thing had gotten blown apart a little bit, but it looked like a fucking Lego set, uh, you know, when they brought it into the, to yeah. the kitchen. Is this thing ever going to run again? What's your guess? Or are we going to have to get a new Triumph? It literally looks like they're just building it from scratch. So I guess I hope that they have all the pieces because, I mean, I'm sorry, but we have to get the Triumph back. We have to have the Triumph. It's just, it's too important. I think... That between Chris and Lou and Vic, I think they can do it. It is TV, by the way. <laughs> I, I, listen, I am no mechanic. I know where the gas goes in my car. I would look at what they brought into that kitchen table, and I would just, where, where's my duct tape? We're going to duct tape this shit back together again, because otherwise I, I would just cry. I don't even have the patience to do Legos. My son will do Lego sets, and I just I, I can't help you. I have big, clumsy fingers. I don't have patience to read little manuals. I, fuck that. Just go get another Triumph. We need to go find something else. Mm, no, see, I was a Lego girl, but I do appreciate Vic's reaction, that gut punch that she felt seeing yeah. her knife like that. And again, God bless Lou for just being there, like right by her side, like, hun, we're going to fix this. I think that we can fix it. I think it can be fixed. I'm fairly confident, like 88.8% sure. Well, I'm going to try and jump on your confidence train because I am not feeling it. I think I had the same reaction Vic did. And, and you're right. It was almost like an audible gasp, gut punch. Like you could feel the wind coming out of her sails when she really saw it, when it sank in. Uh, if the Hourglass Man was the most interesting thing of this episode with all of the lore, all of the scenes in tonight's Wraith, I think, were maybe the most mind-blowing. And I think it's time we get to that. Is it just me, or is Wayne not turning into a ghoul child fast enough for Manx? He seemed really sort of impatient that his cheek hadn't completely healed, and that Wayne wasn't sleeping as much sort of like the other kids do. Like, it's going to take him extra time now. What, an extra day or something? Do you think this is proof that Wayne is special again? Like, sort of how we've been talking about, that he might actually be a strong creative and have his own powers that are starting to manifest? I think so. I think there's so much evidence building here that Wayne is Wayne is clearly not your average kid but even beyond that I, I think this was just more evidence that he has tapped into a power obviously he's a kid so presumably he's not as strong yet as his mother or as Manx or as any of the other strong creatives we've come across in the show but for an eight-year-old he seems definitely to have some nascent natural abilities that are starting to manifest themselves and Charlie definitely seems flustered to me uh, through this whole thing. 
he's checking out his cheek. And this is not something that we've ever really seen him concerned about. It's always just kind of worked. Charlie's gotten the kid in. The next time we see him, he's he's a little bit younger, and then he's a little bit younger, and then he's a little bit younger, and then he's hot, sexy, young Charlie Manx again, right? And that's just not happening here. That huge gash is still a huge gash, really, at the start of this episode. It really hasn't healed. So it really leads you to the question that something is either off with Manx and his knife and his imagination, or there is some kind of spectral interference you know some kind of radio interference coming off of wayne that is kind of you know gumming up the works the way manx is used to it part of me was thinking during this episode i you have to wonder if manx thinks is starting to think maybe it wasn't worth going after wayne at all do you think it's possible his ego would ever concede that maybe this kid and tangling with vic again was just more trouble than it's worth Maybe he's starting to realize that, again, because of just the pure vitriol that he has for Vic. And I also wonder if he sort of just regrets not killing her completely, like wanted, wants to go back and actually make sure she's dead. So I don't know, it's sort of a mix of things. Did you notice him seeming to be flustered at it, the whole process taking longer? Was that something I was reading too much into? No, he definitely seemed impatient about it and, and made a point, again, that, it, that they're going to need another day, another morning, that, you know, Wayne needs to go back to sleep and dream some more so that Charlie can, can finish healing. So, yeah, I think, I think maybe he's starting to wonder and maybe just have a slight, what, have, what did I kind of get myself into with this kid? Right, but as flustered as he's been as flustered as we saw him last week he's still charlie manx and he's still pretty damn smooth at the game of manipulation especially when it comes to kids and when he calls wayne out on having his secret cellular telephone and then encourages him to call his mom because he knows vic is not going to pick up being in the hospital or dead at that point just a master stroke of manipulation you know it's really fun to watch a villain be good at their villain job and yeah. scenes like this with Charlie really make me smile because it's just so damn evil. And it gets the exact kind of reaction from Wayne when she doesn't get through. And Charlie just plays it like a, like a fucking violin, calling her, you know, just another disappointment. And she only thinks about herself, really just hammering home all of the things he knows that are weak spots for Wayne. You know what I was thinking about, Anna, while we were watching this episode? What kind of cell service do you think they get on the St. Nick Parkway? Right? It's it's an inscape. So I, I just think it's kind of funny that, that the cell phone actually works at all. I guess it kind of just made me also think about how the race radio sort of has abilities of strangeness to it. it, it it's sort of... Including, including a, a, a cell tower booster? Maybe, maybe that's what, because I, again, I still think that the back seat is sort of like its own dimension. So if Manx wanted him to have that cell phone available, it probably, they'd have a signal if he wants them to have a signal. But really, honestly, Mike, two words. What do you got for me? Fucking Craig! What in the actual hell was this crispy ghost body <laughs> doing in the back seat of the race? Thank God, first of all, we really needed him. We really needed him. We, oh we my really God. did. It, this was, uh, this could <laughs> not have come. I, there's, there's a bunch to unpack here. This could not have come at a better time because Wayne is in a dangerous spot here. All he is getting is Manx's uh, seductive words 
about how bad a mother Vic is and come to the dark side and you're going to love it in Christmas land and there's going to be kids. All he is getting is that coming in his ear. He doesn't have Lou or Vic, the, the good angels on his other shoulder, exactly. whispering in his ear. Which is, which is interesting because beyond the whole idea of Ghost Craig living in the backseat of the Wraith, is, which we need to get into, but does Craig appear specifically because of that? Because there's a sense that he's in trouble of falling to the dark side. Is it almost like a silent warning alarm to the good angels that he needs to be saved here or, or pulled back to the light a little bit? I don't know. I don't know. That's a neat take on it. For me, too, it was just this huge <sighs> emotional weight, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cry if, if I don't be careful here, of seeing this father and his son who – you know, the father died, and Wayne doesn't even know that he doesn't even who know he, who he no. is sitting there next to him. And it's just, oh my God, it just like rips my heart apart. And it's also like so beautiful at the same time because here he is, he's trying to help his boy and telling him, you know, your mom isn't like this. This is lies. Your mom is really good, and she's going to come and find you. I loved your mom, basically, that he doesn't say it. But, oh, my God, it just, uh tears, 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 tears. I am your father. I mean, right. that was all that was, that was, if, if Darth Vader was a good guy, that was all that was yeah. missing from the scene with Craig. I got to tell you, I know, it takes a lot to surprise me. It takes a lot to shock me, especially when it comes to TV. I watch so much fucking television. I feel like I have seen it all. I was gobsmacked at seeing him in the backseat. And you know what? I knew he was coming back. I knew he was coming back. I knew we were going to see Craig again this yeah. season. And I was still fucking surprised. I know. That's how good a twist it was. I had Holy no shit. idea that that's how they were going to do it. No. And then, no. And also how now it just it opens up so much more mythology about the race itself, what it does, how it works. Because now we've had a second person who's died in that car and – who still exists as a, a crispy ghost. Adult. Another adult, right, who yeah. has died in a car. Right, right, right. Or, yeah. And as far as we know, the only two adults who have died in that car. So we've got Cassie and Craig. So it makes me just want to know so much more about how the race sort of seems to like consume souls, but then also keeps a part of them around or they're uh, they're able to come back somehow because they something about how they died in the car. I don't know. I really it just it just there's so many questions now that that one little addition opens up in this world and and the, and the race of, of, of course is is such a such an interesting character itself what are your thoughts i'm still processing them i just one from a general storytelling you have to give this show so much credit because it has the book right it has the novel it has graphic comic wraith from which so much of charlie's backstory and and to the extent we know about the wraith that's canon uh comes from but this is another layer of, of story building and, and world building and mythology layering. The same way we got the, all the information about the Hourglass Man uh, earlier in this episode, 
All in this, this one is, episode. All in this one episode. This is a huge episode, episode for world building. This is several chapters worth of the strong creative universe and the magic within it. This episode could take up several chapters of that with the things that they introduce. It's interesting the point you raise about Cassie and, and reminding us about her because we haven't seen her in several episodes now. But I wonder if there is something about an adult dying in the Wraith that the Wraith itself can't digest. which Ooh, leaves, which I leaves like, like that. Which leaves a remnant of them. Because think about the Wraith, everything we know about it. It is designed, specifically designed, to consume children's souls, turn it into fuel for Charlie, or for presumably whoever is its owner, currently Charlie for the last hundred years, and a very close second, is to protect itself. The Wraith doesn't let you out. The Wraith doesn't let you in. The Wraith doesn't let you leave the back seat. The Wraith is a is the ultimate in security protection. And yet... <laughs> this is like a commercial race. The ultimate yes. in security protection. It's, it's the fucking Roach Motel, right? It, it, it lets things <laughs> in, but it doesn't let things out. And yet... It has this, what it would see see as this invasive bacteria floating around in its back seat in the form of ghost Craig, burned crispy ghost Craig. It's got in the in the house up on the hill the the spirit of of Cassie floating around. Chewed so, up Cassie. Chewed yeah. up Cassie. So there Cassie. there there is something about adults that the wraith can't fully digest nor seem to, almost like a virus, can't seem to shake. Yeah, because it's, it's definitely, I mean, I really don't think from his actions and what we've, a little bit of, of context clues that we've been given, Manx uh, wanted Cassie to be there in that inscape. I think at first, you know, I was thinking that, that you know, he was keeping her there. Then I kind of switched to the idea of that she wants to be there because that's what moms do. They stay and she's being there for Millie. But after this episode, now I'm completely hooked on this is something that, that, that's coming from the wraith. And like you said, and I loved that point, how it, it can't completely digest an adult. So it doesn't kind of know what to do with that part of them. And that remnant stays in the inscape, stays in the race, stays in that dimension, that realm, whatever you have it. Really, really clever. And I think Charlie's reaction to seeing Wayne, seeing something in the back seat, he, he doesn't know what. And so he kind of passes over and try, tries to change the subject. But, but then Wayne gets real, real lippy with Charlie because he... He sees Craig, but Charlie can't see him in the rear view. So not only can the Wraith not digest these things, but it maybe doesn't even aware, maybe isn't even aware that they're there. And I think the evidence tonight points to the fact that he doesn't know they're back there, that those spirits are laying around, which I think, yeah, I think you're right. When you look back now and think about Cassie, you and I had kind of been going on this theory that he had chosen to keep her around for some sadistic reason but maybe he doesn't even realize that she is occupying that house. It, it really turns it on its head, the whole the whole concept of these adult ghosts now that we've been introduced to this season. Who will be known as Crispy Craig and Chewed Up Cassie at this point. Yeah, Num Num Cassie, I love it. So, man, I, I mean, it really blew my mind. I was so fucking taken back. Uh, but that wasn't all that blew my mind in The Wraith tonight. I know you love special effects. I know you love the production crew on the show. How cool was it to watch... Mm -hmm. 
the handle of the wraith roll itself down just really delicately and silently for Sonny the Butterfly to fly in. This whole scene, I was like, that's awesome. And then I was also kind of cringing hard at that whole butterfly scene. Yeah, it had this super weird, magical, twisted vibe to that whole moment and it, it it was really cool i really enjoyed it it was really it was like oh it's a kind of cute at first <laughs> right and it it plays out pretty much i think how it plays out in in the book if i remember correctly sorry sunny rest in pieces sunny rest in pieces <laughs> hi sunny bye sunny <laughs> again just another shout out to jason david who i don't think we give enough props to every week he's just really killing it in his scenes the violence comes upon him so suddenly but he rolls with it so easily and he kind of gives like this real macaulay culkin in the good son evil smile at the end of the thing like he's so satisfied with his work mm-hmm. and then he lo- and the lost tooth so so much bad stuff happening in this scene that started so magical with the with the delicate rolling down of the the old car window handle. Uh, yeah, I think for people who really didn't know what might happen there, it might have even been more disturbing because, like I said, the way that that Jason David plays it, you know, it was sort of just like that snap turn, that like sudden breaking point, you know, that you just don't expect. He just moves there so fast. Um, yeah, it was, it's, it just gave me creepy, gross chills, yet also I'm a little excited if he's starting to change, because, you know, obviously that's going to make for a lot of fun in the story if we have little creepy demon Wayne. I'm sort of on the fence. (laughs) It's one of the things, it's like, it's almost like a car crash. You can't look away. You have to watch it, even though you may not want it to happen. You still have to look at the thing. Yeah. And it'll be interesting now with this Craig aspect of it. You know, Cassie died in the car and yet lives up in the house. So maybe Craig is not limited to just being in the Wraith. So maybe we'll get to see Craig stay by Wayne's side. The biology as we know it is he is going to turn, right? That no matter how strong he is, if Manx makes it all the way to Christmas land, somehow, if he continues to stay in the Wraith, Wayne, he's eventually going to turn if the Wraith has power. I, I think it's a question of when, not if. It's just the, the overwhelming power of the Wraith to turn him. But the question will be, will the influence of Craig, this ghost spirit that he now has, that he doesn't even know who he is, like you said, can keep him in touch even as a ghoul wing that's going to be the big question yeah that would be nice if if that's what happens and and also it'd be nice to just you know keep seeing craig more definitely for sure i think when you add in the craig factor to it and and the potential strong creative power flowing through wayne's veins i think we have to keep hope and i think we can keep hope that even if he turns all is not lost for him not in the same way some of the other kids, you know, may be lost for good. Just one thing, because you said it, and it made me start thinking, and I started writing a treatment in my head and a pitch for a show in my head. You know, The Wraith should really have its own spinoff. You could have The Wraith through the years, a prequel to Charlie getting the car, and just watching The Wraith have all of its demonic adventures with its original owners. That would be fucking rad, and I would love to watch that. Oh, oh, I think I would too. There's so many different places it could go you know giving this entire history of this car sure give me some wraith backstory definitely that's episode Um, nine episode nine is the wraith backstory the origins of the wraith (laughs) but seriously mike i i think i've got two more words for you oh my god hit me with them i can't can't even wait fucking bing what the hell was that again 
Hard oh. to shock me, Anna. Hard to shock me. But holy shit, everything in the Wraith was just like, what? What in the actual fuck it. am I watching? I wasn't oh expecting God. that either. No, no. What, what is even happening there? What is your best theory <gasps> on Bing gassing and dragging Charlie away? And, and, and unhooking the Wraith, which is a key thing and a great yeah. detail that the show does. Really smart detail that the show throws in. What do you think he could possibly be doing here? I really, I haven't even speculated on that because I'm still sort of processing. Oh, and also just really uh, a little prop again to Zachary Quinto, just his physical acting in that moment. He sort of does this like cartoon-like wavy pass out moment thing, had me on the floor laughing as I was sort of horrified as what was going on. I mean, we see Bing like dragging him away. I don't know. I I mean, obviously, Bing either is fixated on getting to Christmas Land and maybe somehow wants to uh, force Charlie to take him, or he just straight up wants to do something to Charlie now since he was sort of left behind. And I think Bing's really kind of getting the hint now that he might not have a place. I, I don't know. What did you think? What do you think is going to happen? Same as you. I was kind of shocked. Yeah, one, I want to give I want to give a shout out to, to Bing in his gassing technique because this is the second week in a row now we've seen him use the bum rush technique where he, he uses his <laughs> giant body to close the gap super fast. He did it last week to Lou where he's you know, several feet away but closes the gap so fast and gets that hose right up in your fucking face and, and just <laughs> knocks you out. He, he's had eight years to perfect his technique now, Mike. Eight yeah. years. But he's definitely been taking a course on aggressive, you know, gassing techniques. And holy shit, because he gets Manx out quick. And you have to imagine Charlie is probably not the easy, especially young Charlie, is not the easiest person to knock out and, and overwhelm. And he does it so easily. We've been hinting about has being reached his breaking point and dragging Charlie away. Where the fuck is he taking him to? Is he because it didn't look like he was just dragging him around to the to the boot of the car, which is a common place for Charlie and Bing to stash bodies. We've seen a lot of adults go into the back the, to the trunk of the car. It looked like he was dragging him somewhere else. I have no idea. I have no idea what his end game is. The fact that he takes the wraith and turns it off, though he unplugs the wraith, tells me though that. At the very least, he is going to have a conversation with Charlie before anything else happens. He wants to make sure Charlie is depowered before he comes to. So I can't even begin to speculate what what the end game is here. Is it just straight revenge for being left again? Or is it extortion time? Either get me to Christmas land or I'm going to fucking kill you. I don't know. But as shocking as that was, it was great to see ghost crispy craig come back again and encourage wayne to call his mom again and you know what i loved i loved wayne saying i already tried that and craig says try again almost like he's christian bale yeah. batman try again wayne i'm batman <laughs> he uh, needed that though dad he, needed to give him a push for sure he did. he did he did he did he needed that push and that's that's kind of the role that we saw in crispy craig in this episode was he was this life vest, this life preserver for Wayne when he's feeling most down about his mom. Oh uh, God. You know, breaks my heart. And, so uh, beautiful. It's so beautiful. <laughs> and, and I, and I hope it continues. I hope he can continue to be that for Wayne for whatever comes to him next, because 
he gets a hold of his mom. Vic is really happy in there, and he's trying, in his really great kid way, he's trying to be like, I don't know, I'm in a junkyard. I can't see fucking license plates. It was fantastic watching him just be a kid like, why are you asking me all of these questions? Come yeah, get me. Yeah, just get Jesus me out of here. <laughs> right, 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 which is exactly how every kid would be, I think. I don't know where, yep. what exit I watched. I'm, not, what are you, I'm, a, I'm eight years old, and I'm being kidnapped. I'm not paying attention to those salient details. So I love that, but then the line goes dead. Is it bad cell surface, Anna, or does Bing return, or is it something else horrible that I can't even think of? What's your best guess as we leave this episode on what, on what happened to that phone call? I'm thinking Bing probably came back for him. I hope not. Uh, I hope Bing just goes and does whatever he needs to do with Manx and leaves Wayne. But I have a bad feeling, and I, I do hope that Craig is able to leave the Wraith and stick around and be that link to humanity that uh, I think Wayne is going to need as we're seeing him sort of start to change into not such a great kid. I think it's a great sign that even after the Sunny the Butterfly scene, he's able to tell his mother that he's terrified because something is changing in him, that, that something is going wrong inside him. None of the kids have really been aware of the change. They've, exactly, yeah. They've kind of leaned into it hard without even realizing it. Wayne knows something is fucked up inside of him, and I'm attributing that to Crispy Craig keeping that fire lit inside of him. But I, that gives me so much hope that he's aware of it, that even if the thing happens, the, the real Wayne will still continue to exist in a small flame inside of him. That's my hope anyway. And maybe that's, again, a, a sort of clue into maybe how he is special because he uh, is a strong creative. Maybe that also is giving him the ability to recognize that something is happening to him where the other kids don't recognize it at all they go to sleep and then they wake up horrible or you know they just turn right there and take a bite out of their mom so you know for the first time we're seeing a kid who is realizing that things aren't right and that he needs to get out of that car because he's not himself at all Oh, chilling. Chilling. So many question marks as we go, as we now have to wait a whole fucking week uh, for next episode. But but we're not done yet, though. And uh, even though we're done talking about episode six, we hope you stick around because right now we have a fantastic interview with John, the hourglass man, Beckett himself, Paul Schneider. Woohoo! It <laughs> He's really, so much fun. So much fun. Really, I mean, just the way the interview starts is, is just a fucking hoot and a holler. <laughs> He's so interesting. So, yeah, we had a great time. He has a lot of great takes and some really interesting stuff to say about the hourglass man and, and fate and decision making so definitely stick around for that it's a great little interview and then uh, then we'll be back to wrap up the show and we'll be back after this thanks uh, all right so what are we talking about what do you guys like about this show oh oh well, I mean, I'll let Anna go first. What am I saying? Yeah, well, what do you like about the show? Paul is interviewing us. What do you like about the show? Is... Oh, okay. <laughs> wow. I mean, what do you think happened to you when you were a kid that draws you towards supernatural <laughs> terror? Oh, yeah. why? Oh, why? <laughs> oh, just liking to explore all kinds of different ideas. And, I mean, but you, you could know. just as, you know, you could have just as easily become a cheerleader, you know? Oh, God, no. 
Yeah. <laughs> I did visual arts. So, right. you know. See, all of us stick together in our little holes and hovels and we like, we, yeah. Yeah, we, we send out bat signals and we're like, oh, there's another weird one. Like, come into my cave. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I'm going to collect. So don't stay more, yeah, you're don't stay more than three days. <laughs> I was talking about Caleb Carr. Uh, I was I was talking about the alienist the other day, and uh, I said to someone, "It's like I wonder who hurt him as a child that he came up with the idea for like the second book that the new season is based on." And and same with like Stephen King and Joe Hill. You know, exactly. their, their their minds go so dark. It's tremendous what they come up with. Yeah, and I think strangely enough, the people that are the Sagazons or the Stephen Kings or the whatever, like the people that are kind of you know letting the air in and out of their psyches, they sometimes are the healthiest folks, although the world would read their books and think differently. Took the words out of my mouth. You're not denying a part of yourself. You're going ahead and exploring that, letting it take you where it goes. And I think when something's suppressed, it just builds like a volcano and then it'll come out in an unhealthy way. Definitely. So we all have to kind of be in touch with all these different aspects of ourselves and these different sides. I mean, my parents were really smart to like, let me do my like heavy metal thing. Yeah, there you go. I, that I still am doing and I'm going to play all the good stuff for my daughter, but Iron Maiden and Slayer kind of, you know, my mom was a little bit like, what is this? Like, what's the deal here? <laughs> and I remember showing her the song, Alexander the Great. And I was like, it's like history. It's like, I know it sounds loud and he's screaming a little bit, but it's like, it's this historical thing. I read later that when, or I saw a documentary about parenting boys specifically, this documentary called Raising Cain, and the guy said, when especially young boys are drawing, they draw like blood and guts and war right. all the time and guns and, you know, when kids are eight or 10 or whatever. And he said that what you have to do is let them get it all out and do their thing and don't shame or be shocked around this idea because... You have to give them confidence that you also know the difference between the world of imagination and the world of real life. And if you freak out about that, then they think, oh shit, mom doesn't know the difference and I know the difference. You've done kind of everything. You've been the funny guy. You've been the romantic lead. You've been the villain here. Was there something about this part, you know, Jonathan Beckett, the hourglass man that drew you to it that you wanted to play different from other roles you've taken? Yeah, I mean, like, I, you know, I got involved because Craig McNeil, the guy that I did Channel Zero with, he called me up and asked me if I wanted to be involved with this. And as far as the Hourglass Man, I just thought he was an interesting guy. He kind of like remote controls these people to get done when he needs done, but he doesn't like a mess. I like somebody who doesn't work very hard and doesn't <laughs> like to work very hard because I think I'm the same way. And I like the fact that he's sort of obsessed with Charlie Manx's power, but kind of would, would say he's not. You know, I just liked him because he was a funny guy. He's one of the probably few brand new characters that was brought to the series. So when you prepare to play a role, do you spend a lot of time working on a backstory for that character? Or do you just sort of take what's on the page at face value? I mean, I did talk to Tom and Jamie a little bit about like, what are the rules of this world? You're trying to understand like who these strong creatives are, like what does it take out of him when he, you know, this whole business about him getting a nosebleed. It wasn't so much like a backstory because, I mean, maybe that would come later, but when you're jumped into one of these things, especially as a character, you know, kind of in the middle of a series, you're kind of going zero to 60. And so, sure. I mean, for me, lots of times I'm just kind of praying that I don't suck and learning my lines. And there's a lot of me just standing up and saying shit. 
<laughs> but, you know, put it on the clothes and tell me where to stand. And, and there we go. But it was a little bit more like, what are the rules? What are the mechanics of this gift that he has? More the rules of the world than it was his necessarily like his backstory. That's cool, though. That's cool to want to know because it is a, a really kind of crazy, fascinating world. You know, when it comes to these characters, like I'm kind of just there to give flavors, you know, like I'm just giving the editor colors. I, I'm not the artist. I'm just like Sherwin Williams. Like I'm just there to give you footage and then they can do whatever they need with it. So I try not to get too too Method? precious about the yeah I just I because because I was an editor in film school like I studied editing and so when actors talk about the supreme authorship they have of a certain performance I think like well sure but it's being created for you in many ways like you can take an actor who sucks and make him good in an editing room and you can make someone who's good great and then there are moments where you know you have Anthony Hopkins in The Elephant Man or Peter O'Toole in Lawrence of Arabia. And, and they're kind of like, well, I mean, you know, there's not too much you can do with it because it's just so good. You just go with what they give you. But most of the performances, they're being built in the editing room. So I try not to get too precious about my, you know, authorship. I mean, I just have great clothes and I say the words and there we go. And you and to see, see how it comes out. You said yeah. you, you actually gave a good glimpse into the character that he's kind of obsessed with Charlie Manx's power and having unlocked immortality. Maybe he would deny being obsessed, but he certainly is thinking about it. And he doesn't mind getting his hands dirty. I mean, the last two episodes that we've seen of him now, he's he's done some pretty violent things. But do you think there's a limit to what he'd do for Manx at, at this point? trying to get that secret that Charlie has? Oh, no, I, I don't think there's any limits. I think, you know, his limits are just his own imagination and his work rate. I think he's willing to go for it. I mean, some of the things that he's done don't make me think that he's going to wake up the next morning and have a conscience about anything. It's a little bit like once you hone in on something and you're, you know, the chase is like, at a certain point, you just want the thing you're chasing because you're chasing it. It's sort of inertia. Like, it does, you kind of don't know how you feel about the thing you're chasing anymore. Right. It's just what you're doing, and you just know you have to get to the end, and there's not a lot of oversight. Or, or maybe right. even how you kind of lose sight how you even got to where you are. It's like every bad relationship we've been in where we, like, we get out of it finally, and, and we're like, what the fuck was I doing for a year? Like, <laughs> I, I am not suited to that person at all. And you've spent so much time with that person at like negative five, all of a sudden you have a good day with that person and you're at negative two and you're like, oh, this is great, but you're still at negative two. Like a proper relationship, you should be a positive five. Yeah, our, our, <laughs> our measuring stick gets a little skewed. Totally. And, and speaking of relationships, um, your scenes with Jakar Smith's Maggie go from seductive at the bar to full-on violent in the hotel room. Can you tell us anything about filming the fight scene with her? Those moments um, kind of got wild there. You're thrashing around in the hotel room. Like, I know. Like I'm glad it seemed like that. Obviously, when it comes to that kind of thing, we've got stunt professionals, and it tends to be very um, technical. And I like that part because I, like I said, I studied film before I started acting. And so I like the, just the filmmaking stuff. And so I like working closely with the camera department and with a stunt coordinator and figuring out blocking and figuring out time and space in the room and everything else. So that stuff is always fun for me, but you can't ever like get wild, wild. You know, you kind of find pockets within safety to look like you're getting wild, you know, right. to make a crazy face or you, you know what I'm saying? You sort of get right. yourself situated in a safe way and then you say something fucked up or whatever. Right. But those scenes tend to be controlled in a way, but I like that stuff. 
you know, like I said, they slap it together in the editing room and you put some good music on it and you're, you're a lot of the way there. You know, I know a lot of actors don't necessarily like to go back and look at the work that they've done, but with your editor's eye, do you go back ever and look at these kinds of scenes and say, holy shit, that came out so much better than I had kind of pictured it in my mind's eye when I was doing it or going through it? I kind of wish I was better at that, but partly because I think I just wish my brain was nicer to me when it came to looking at myself. I mean, it's curse. Well, it's just like, I, I don't mean to be boring, but it's just, I see it and it's just so like, it's all just stuff I wish I'd have done better. When we leave you, your hourglass has been smashed. You've got a big old shiv sticking out of your belly. You're not looking in great shape. Without being too spoilery, can you tell us if this was the last we see of the hourglass man? Or, or maybe we're going to see you again in this season. Well, I will say that whenever somebody's shot in the stomach or in the shoulder, I think the writers are leaving themselves some room. Ooh. Um, I'm not the writers. But you know, I mean, you know the film language. I mean, yeah, you yeah. Know, no body. I mean, I there mean, was no, there was no, there was no final yeah. body. No in... final death. Yep. Right. And also, <laughs> this is the kind of show where crazy things can happen. In this episode, we got to see a guy who had been burned alive last season came back this this week. So you never right. know. So, you never know. Right. I think if Jonathan Beckett was burned alive or disfigured in some way, I think he would just commit ritual suicide and not. I, I don't think he would. <laughs> I mean, God. I mean, yeah, he's too, he's too suave. Yeah. Too concerned about his the way he looks. So, that, yeah. that goatee is too damn on point to mess that up with mm-hmm. the singed hair. So. <laughs> right. And and we, we sorted out a, a makeup and a hair that was more extreme, but it, it was dialed down by the powers that be, which is, which is a terrible thing. But he still looks interesting, which I'm glad. You're typically a clean-shaven guy. How was it working with a dapper beard look? obviously shaving is very annoying i mean i wish i had cool body hair but you just i just don't so um cool body hair all right thank you for you know like thank you you for the the, you know the uh, the orlando bloom splash of cool body hair but the maintenance that you need to get on screen is always such a a chore for me but i'm happy to do it to, to play a character like this all right we're gonna do it we ask everyone who comes on strong creatives welcome this question what would your strong creative power be, like your Inscape, and what would your knife be? I think my strong creative power is, is so boring and pedestrian, but lately I've just been thinking a lot about teleporting over flying. Ooh. Nice. That's not boring. That's not boring. That's not boring. Just because you want to visit people, but you don't want to go to airports anymore. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, I mean, that, somebody that needs to invent it. It's a great power yeah. in the but Roman then, times. You know, nowadays, the, the, with the technology, you have friends all over the world, and you kind of want to visit them, but you'll never see them again, which is terrible, and Zoom doesn't really work. How would you trigger it? It would have to be like the thimble from the Monopoly board. I think, I it, would be, it. I think <laughs> it would be just on... Maybe I'd have to find two thimbles. To make it hard for myself, I'd have to find two thimbles. I'd have to break into somebody else's house and borrow their Monopoly board. And um, I had to tap them together 17 times, and then I could go where I wanted. I will send you the spare thimble, okay? I will send you the spare thimble, yeah. That way you don't have to commit any sort of breaking and entering. I just like the idea of superpowers being something that are kind of awkward to access. Yeah. Right. Right. In, yeah. in, in, uh, in, in college, we used to come up with strange superpowers where somebody yes. had said, you know, like, you can fly, but you have to start at a kilometer in the air. And you're just like, well, how do I get there? Like, that's where you can't fly up to it. You have to start there. That's what gives the hero integrity, you know, when you have to work right. for the power. You have to work for it, yeah. Right. You just jump out of the window of the plane, but you're already in the plane. So what's the, you know, how fast are you talking? <laughs> 
Super last bonus question. If you wouldn't, you, Paul, wouldn't get in trouble and you had the hourglass man's mind control power, what would you do with it? I don't know. Lately, I've been thinking about yards and space. I just had a daughter. I've been thinking about all sorts of boring things. I would make sure that I wasn't a shitty dad. I would have gone with not being on diaper uh, patrol. You know what? It's have. I don't know if you have a kid or not. I have a twelve-year-old. Yeah, I do. Yeah, it is all the shit guys say to each other about having kids. It's baloney. It's so not as hard as people say, and it's fantastic. It is. Congratulations, by the way. Yeah, congratulations. Oh yeah, this is a full-on COVID baby. Like yeah, yeah, she's killing it and born it at the wrong slash right time. Well, you'll have a you'll have a great story to tell her about when people to talk to each other. You know, yeah, exactly. When she, when she's ten and only knows you know you and no one else. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, Paul, thank you so much Paul. for uh, coming and talking with us. Sorry for uh, all of the connection troubles, but I appreciate you. Yeah, guys no, I'm, I I don't know what's going on with this thing, but if ever you guys have any uh, weird stuff to ask, let me know, or if you have any weird um, voiceover stuff you want read for your show, just contact me. Take care, Paul. Thanks right, so much. Talk to you guys thank soon. you, Paul. Bye-bye. Bye, bye. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening, for tuning in every week, for making this one of the most listened to podcasts in the country. It means so, so much to to Anna and to me that you guys are listening and, and just, you know, giving us great feedback in the Facebook group, online, in, in comments. So thank you guys so much. I can't can't begin to thank you enough. Yeah, we really appreciate you listening. We're having such a ball. I hope you'll come back next week. In the meantime, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the Strong Creatives Welcome, the Nosferatu podcast on Apple Podcasts and wherever you listen to podcasts. Bye-bye, everybody. Strong Creatives Welcome, the Nosferatu podcast, is an original production of Pod Clubhouse. Recorded, edited, and produced at Pod Clubhouse Studios. For more information, please visit us online at podclubhouse.com.